Hello everyone, welcome uh, to Talk Talks. Uh, my name is Andrew Kistner and I am your host. And today we have an awesome guest uh, on us, on with us. Uh, his name is Dr. Robert Sherwin. And uh, he is our director of research, handles all of our research uh, projects and whatnot, works with the entire team. And uh, I invited him on today to talk about um, uh, the study that we um, are, is out for publication as well as the study that he, he really would like to do. So uh, we'll jump right into it. Uh, welcome, Dr. Sherwin, it's good to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. You bet. Um, so I'll jump right into it. Uh, first, let's hear a little bit about you specifically, you know, where do you work? What have you done? Um, credentials that you've, you know, attained? So I'm a uh, emergency physician by training and I'm board certified in emergency medicine, internal medicine and, and hyperbaric medicine. Uh, I've been involved in clinical research for 15, oh gosh, 18 years. And uh, the vast majority of my work is in the emergency department studying critically ill patients, patients with severe infections, things of that nature. Um, and, but also of course, involving uh, hyperbaric medicine as well. I got involved in hyperbaric medicine um, in 2007, 2008, when a large chamber was put into our hospital. Mm. And I was um, one of the physicians who was invited to get certified. Um, and became board certified a few years thereafter and have been involved in various aspects of clinical and, and academic hyperbaric uh, medicine since. Awesome. Uh, that's, that's, that's incredible. So what got you into the research side of things? So I've always been uh, academically driven, you can say, and it is a being in research allows you to pursue uh, various questions and and really push the envelope of medicine on how to treat people better, how to study different conditions, um, the epidemiology of things, the um, causality, things of that nature, hmm. testing various protocols or various treatments to see if um, one is superior to another, or if you can sometimes um, in, improve a condition where there isn't uh, previously a, a good treatment. So, awesome. How do you how do you manage the time you put towards research and the time you put towards just doing your your day to day job? How do you do that? Yeah, so that's a very good question. Um, sometimes I, I don't do that very well, and. Um, <laughs> You know, a lot of times, but it's time management, management, making priorities and uh, sometimes, which includes your personal life. Right. Um, I, I'm here, at, you know, taking the podcast at home, so I, I clearly don't have fantastic, <laughs> uh, well-defined boundaries sometimes, but um, <laughs> I do, uh, you know, but, but I make lists and on one day uh, I've got this to do, on another day I've got this to do, and you just have to kind of keep yourself in check and again, make priorities, but also you do want to set boundaries. And right. it's like, listen, I'm at work, I'm treating patients. I don't need to be writing a paper. Um, you know, I set time aside to, you know, do different things and, um, and delegate. Always make sure that yeah. when you have somebody <laughs> and you've hired them, you work with them, um, delegate them and allow them to do the job that they're hired to do. Awesome. Love it. I've spent more time, I think, here at the clinic because we have the foundation dinner, uh, the gala this week than I have at home. So I understand it, but I'm, I'll be glad to be done with that. It's an awesome cause, though. Um, so 
if you wouldn't mind, highlight a couple of the research studies that you know you've you've been involved with, um, and I guess specifically from the HBOT stand of uh, side of things. Sure. So. At the hospital, we're involved in, in several large networks, and networks are groups of institutions and hospitals and universities that uh, have agreed to do research together, and that um, creates a, a good economy of scale where you can get good research projects done relatively quickly, and also it, it diversifies the the subject pool so you have patients from various parts of the country various demographics oftentimes various parts of the world um, and so one of those trials does involve hyperbarics right now in um, uh, patients with severe traumatic brain injury and that is something that we are participating in uh, at the hospital level which is involving hyperbarics. Um, with respect to the clinic, we have a paper that's out for peer review publication that is describes a, a study that we did looking at autistic children being treated at the Oxford Center. And it compared children with autism who were treated with hyperbarics and compare them to children who were not treated with hyperbarics. Hmm. So that was actually quite interesting. I am a bit of a hyperbaric skeptic, uh, to tell you the truth. And I think that's why um, Dr. Peterson uh, appreciates my opinion sometimes. Sometimes she may not. But um, <laughs> meaning you really have to prove the value of something to me. And um, because though hyperbaric oxygen is, is very safe and effective for what it uh, should be used for, you know, it, it's not the, um, you know, the panacea of cure of, of everything that ails you. So right. I, uh, I'm a believer where, where there's evidence and where there's biologic plausibility, if there's not rigorous evidence yet. But um, I'm also the person to say, listen, don't waste your time doing, uh, doing it for X, Y, and Z. So the, the results were uh, did surprise me a little bit because I really thought we were going to find absolutely nothing, um, and that and that's good. That's that's what you want to. That's how when you when you go into a research trial or any project, you don't want to have an assumption you're going to find a difference, right? Because that really biases you as an investigator, um, because even subconsciously you may tweak things a little bit and and essentially find exactly right. the answer that that you 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 wanted to so um but the data was there and the the thing about autism and hyperbarics is that um th there's um a bit of bad press surrounding that whole concept yeah. and there's a lot of issues with regards to um, there's some predatory practices with not just hyperbaric medicine, but but a lot of like complementary things where people will sell you this, that, and the other thing um, for you know just to make money. So, but and unfortunately, I think hyperbaric medicine has been swept up into that to a certain extent. So there, um, you know, that's something that you kind of have to swim against the you know right. swim against the flow with regards to. So anyway. <clears throat> The, the results showed that the children who got hyperbarics, who are autistic, um, had, an improved, um, had improved verbal skills 
compared to those kids who did not get hyperbarics. Now, this was for a younger age group. Okay. Uh, we did not find the same uh, benefit in the older age group. And it's also important to really highlight the fact that this is what we call a retrospective trial, which means um, this was, we, we looked at the charts and the medical records of children who had already been treated. They'd already gone through the, um, the hyperbaric treatment or, or did not. And so um, that is less rigorous data than when you do things prospectively, when you right. enroll patients in a, in a formal trial. So this is something we were just looking back at the data for kids who had or had not received hyperbarics. And, um, but it is, it is a good signal. And it, it was, uh, again, it was a bit surprising to me because I, I didn't really think we were gonna find anything, but we did. And so my, uh, our hope is that we now go on to do a prospective trial. Okay. And a pros prospective trial would require um, us to enroll children before they get hyperbarics. It's done very rigorously, done very safely. Um, it requires the approval of an IRB, which is a, a governing body that reviews research and determines, yes, this is ethical and it's safe and your protocol is, is well written and done in a manner that would not uh, lead to any harm or loss of confidentiality or things like that. So, um, but though that is the gold standard of doing research and really drives um, drives medicine and drives change with regards to policy and drives change with regards to decision, um, uh, you know, with regards to decisions that are made at, at um, like the governmental level and things of that nature, they're, they're expensive to do. Right. Um, because it takes a long time. Um, when we decided to do a retrospective trial, all the charts were already there. We had all the data. We just had to kind of uh, go through the regulatory process, get it approved. Uh, collect the data uh, from the medical records and analyze it and write it up. Okay. So, um, but when you're doing it prospectively, you essentially you have to wait for, for patients to, to show up, to be consented. And then it has to be done in a very rigorous manner. Again, so you're protecting patients, um, protecting their health, protecting their confidentiality, protecting uh, essentially their human rights to participate or not participate in, right. in, in a, um, in a medical trial. So right. uh, but it can be very expensive. Okay. So what's the goal? So we had the first study and that was retrospective. We looked back at, at all the data we had, uh, wrote, um, you know, the write up on it and it's out for publication. The second study that you were just talking about is the one that you want to do. Is it going over the same, um, is it, does it have the same goal? I think you probably have a word for that, but we're, we're looking for verbal. Right. So we, in research, we describe things as objectives or primary yeah. outcomes. And our primary outcome would be improvement of, of their verbal skills um, based on specific verbal tests that we administer them. And because that is what we used in the initial trial, and it is also what we found as a difference, that we will also be targeting not just that but that is what we will design the study around is Got verbal it. skills but we'll also be looking at a number of of outcomes um including behavior including um uh you know different cognitive tests and things of that nature but that would be the primary thing we would look at and design the trial around 
Awesome. Um, as I've told you before, you know, with a daughter with autism that's seven and nonverbal, that that would mean a lot to a lot of people, you know, uh, if if we were able to get that study off the ground. So, um, so in order to get this study, the one that you'd like to do, moving, what would what are the big needs that you have? Um, well, money is yeah. is a big driver, and and patience, and um, so the again trials like this require um, personnel. Uh, it requires money for um, uh, just the, the regulatory process it, it is not without cost because you have to have some oversight. You have to have right. uh, the appropriate, um, you know, reviews and things of that nature. And it is something where you, you just can't go out and we're looking at probably enrolling a few hundred patients. If you did that just at one particular center, that may take years and years and years. Okay. Right. And as I alluded to the hospital, we have networks uh, that we belong to and which sometimes there are hundreds of hospitals across the world that, that are involved, which um, which requires a lot of coordination, requires a lot of money. And but the good thing when you have more than one center is that you can enroll faster and you can um, a trial that would otherwise take several years may take six months or something right. of that nature. So um, it would be ideal to have to recruit partner centers um, or institutions who would be willing and able to participate as well. And again, um, but, but all this does add costs. I, I did want to add, I think I went off on a little tangent about, you know, how hyperbarics, particularly autism has gotten sort of a bad rap. Um, but the the bottom line is there is no great data out there. And there were a couple recent papers, one um, from uh, AHRQ, which is the Agency of Healthcare um, Research and Quality, and another one uh, from um, the Cochrane Database Review, which both essentially did not recommend hyperbarics, but they also cited that there really wasn't any data. There were one or two right, trials right. out there and the data is equivocal, but there is a lot of biologic plausibility. And that's that's a, a, a really important thing to point out that we're not talking about uh, doing something that you can't conceptualize. We know what hyperbarics does for mitigating uh, inflammation and infection and uh, mitigating uh, oxygen delivery and mitigating the body's ability to, to heal from lack of blood flow from a lot of things. And we also know on the autism side, it's really multifactorial and there's a, a lot of those themes overlap. So um, so anyway, it, it's important to understand that we, we had this uh, very interesting signal, a positive signal. There is some biologic plausibility and the data otherwise just isn't out there. Right. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that that I'm 100% sure that a, a, a randomized prospective trial is going to um, is going to be positive, meaning it's going to find something. But I, I think that the um, it's it's very clear that the research is is needed uh, yeah. because yeah. we really don't have otherwise any great effective intervention. So, right. So as far as, far as hyperbarics. Um, 
we talked a little bit uh, a bit ago about insurance coverage because insurance you know covers what 14 conditions do you think that if we were to able to provide the research you know and this study goes um in a direction that would say that it would you know benefit uh children with autism do you think that that insurance would eventually maybe be able to cover something like this um so the 30,000 foot answer is, is yes, of course, uh, with enough data, they would be compelled to to cover something. But we are, frankly, years away from that. Right. Um, that said, what um, what is covered for, you know, the, the, the covered indications that are generally supported by, by payers and uh, CMS, if you look at the data that supports a lot of them, it's it's not it's not incredibly rigorous or voluminous. Okay, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of trials. We're talking like, oh gosh, there's maybe a handful of trials um, that, that support an indication. And they are, they oftentimes are, are, are more likely to, to kind of check that and, and support something if there isn't already you know, and, and otherwise better or, or any intervention that they can provide. So it's right. not like saying, yeah, you should do this in, instead of this because this treatment is better than this treatment. It's like, well, there's some data to support it and we don't really have anything else to offer, um, you know, that, that's like this. And so th there is that where they very well may have a slightly lower threshold because um, these are sometimes what are referred to as orphan conditions, meaning they don't otherwise have um, a gold standard intervention that can be right. provided. So, okay. That makes sense. I, I get that. Um, so from your HBOT perspective in your training, what excites you about um, other conditions? You know, the future, if we look to the future of what we possibly could treat with hyperbarics, um, what are conditions out there that excite you? So two in particular, uh, head trauma, and and um, and concussions are, are a big thing, and those are not quite orphan conditions, but they certainly are conditions in which there there aren't a lot of great treatments, um, and there is um, there there's a lot of research going on on that front, and uh, and that's progressing, and I I suspect that um, that's an indication we will probably see approved in the coming years. The other thing that's, that's further away is, is something known as preconditioning. And we, we uh, you know, mentioned a few of the effects of hyperbarics, uh, you know, a little bit ago with regards to uh, mitigating inflammation and infection and oxygen delivery, uh, assisting the body to heal itself and, and mitigating ischemia, which is essentially a lack of blood flow uh, to different areas of the body. Well, something the, that, that has been looked at is preconditioning somebody where you actually put them in a hyperbaric chamber for several sessions over the course of a, a week or two before they have surgery, before they, they, they undergo that insult. And, um, and some of the data that is out there has really suggested that patients heal better, they have fewer complications, hmm. in particular patients going uh, on cardiac bypass. <clears throat> so in those patients, they actually might start stop the heart. The patient actually goes on a bypass machine while they're getting open heart surgery. Uh, not everyone undergoes this, but that's kind of like the 
the um, ultimate insults, right? Your heart has stopped right. and they're redirecting your blood flow. So there is some suggestion that, that patients undergoing something as severe as that, if they get hyperbarics beforehand and sometimes even afterwards, they'll have less incidences of stroke, of neurologic complications, of infections and things of that nature. Again, the data isn't definitive right now. There's not a um, voluminous uh, amount of literature out there, but that's something that I, I really think is it's preventative and it's right. also something you can apply kind of across the board. Right. Um, so uh, yeah, those are two, I think, conditions that are, are indications that I would like to see more data um, surrounding in the coming years. Awesome. Well, hey, I'm going to, we'll close this conversation out. I've appreciated uh, getting to know you a little bit um, and your contribution uh, to hyperbaric medicine. I think that the research you're doing um, at, you know, at some point is going to just change a lot of lives. And that's really what it's all about. Um, definitely from our perspective and I think from yours. So uh, it's been an absolute joy to have you on. Um, and uh, hopefully in a couple months, we'll have something else to talk about. Yep. I, I look forward to it. Thank you again for inviting me. You bet. Thanks. Okay, thanks. Well, thank you everyone for watching this episode with Dr. Sherwin. Um, he, again, is our research director and has been on board you know, with us for, for many years. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. Um, we are on all the, the podcast platforms. You can watch the video uh, on YouTube uh, and Facebook and whatnot. So uh, please join us again next Thursday for another episode, and it should be a lot of fun.